Good morning. Glad to see that at least a couple of you decided to come back this week for part two. So last week I shared one of the more insightful descriptions of philosophers that I've encountered, and that's Dr. Michael Lacona's statement that a philosopher is someone who spends all day thinking about the number four. And as I was preparing this sermon this week, I was reminded of another excellent description of philosophy that I stumbled across several years ago. And this one comes from the satirical article, New Directions in Pooh Studies by biblical scholar David J.A. Kleins, which I recommended to all of you last year during our series on the Pentateuch. And in describing the characters of Winnie the Pooh in that article, Kleins writes, Eeyore's wisdom is philosophical or speculative wisdom. He thought about things. And then he goes on to quote directly from one of the Winnie the Pooh books, which says the following about Eeyore. The old gray donkey Eeyore stood by himself in a thistly corner of the forest, his front feet well apart, his head on one side, and thought about things. Sometimes he thought sadly to himself, why? And sometimes he thought, wherefore? And sometimes he thought, inasmuch as which? And sometimes he didn't quite know what he was thinking about. Kleins then states, this is arguably the best account that has ever been given of the nature of philosophical thought. <laughs> Touche, Professor Kleins. So, as you'll recall, today is part two of our short series on death. I'm going to start with a very brief summary of what we covered last week. Last week, I gave a few reasons that I think death is an important subject for us to be thinking about and discussing. Understanding death helps us to prepare well to face our own deaths, as well as the deaths of our loved ones, and also equips us to be able to help and support others who have experienced the death of a loved one. Thinking and acting biblically about death should also differentiate us from the culture at large, which may result in opportunities to share the gospel. Next, we looked at what death actually is, and we defined it as the separation of the body and the soul that takes place when the major systems and organs of the body cease to function in a coordinated fashion. Finally, we looked at four things that I think are key to a correct understanding of death, and those are that death is a consequence of sin, death is an enemy, death is temporary, and death is unnatural. This week, we're going to pick up where we left off last week and consider how these things should inform the way we think about and respond to death. I'm going to lay out a few principles and give suggestions of how those might apply. We'll then look at a couple questions that I anticipate may have arisen in the course of the material we've covered, and I'll attempt to provide satisfactory answers to those. We'll even get a little bit personal, and I'll share a bit about how developing a clear understanding of death has helped me in the wake of Sophia's death. So we'll have some application, we'll have some personal material, I might even cry, um, possible, I, but probably not likely, in case any of you had that on your bingo sheets. Uh, but in any event, um, there should be something for everyone. So let's start with the following question. In light of the understanding of death we have laid out so far, how should we react to death? What should our response be? Well, first, our response to death includes grief. As we've said, death is a consequence of sin, it is an enemy, and it is unnatural. As such, grief is a completely appropriate and warranted response to death. 
This probably seems so obvious as to be almost not worth mentioning, but I do think it warrants reflection. Every death, whether expected or unexpected, whether sudden or the result of a long, slow decline in health, is tragic inasmuch as it is the result of sin and something which God did not intend and which was not part of his design for humanity. As such, every death is a thing to be grieved. Sometimes, though, I think the circumstances surrounding death can distract us from this fact. Whether a death was expected or unexpected, natural or tragic, can have a strong influence on how we think and feel about it. At least I know that is the case for me, and I have it on good authority from Guy Platter that I'm a psychopath, um, or possibly a sociopath. There's some disagreement about that. Um, but in any event, um, when my grandfather passed away in his 90s as a widower of around a dozen years, and after several years of failing health, I was not nearly as sad about that as I was about the death of my sister or of my daughter. And I think that's okay. I'm not saying we have to feel equally sad about every death. However, we should not allow the fact that a death is natural or expected from our perspective to distract us from the fact that all death is a result of our rebellion against God and something that God did not intend for us to experience. After all, when we describe a death as natural, all we really mean is that it accords with our usual experience that people live only so long before their bodies eventually give way to decay or disease. However, our experience is only of this world that is marred and damaged as a result of sin, and when viewed from the perspective of God's design for humanity, the death of my grandfather in his 90s is no, par no more a part of that design than the death of my daughter at 33 and a half weeks of age. Death is an enemy, even if it does not come until we reach advanced age, even if it does not involve pain and suffering, even if the person who died was expecting it and prepared for it. And this entails that every death is a thing to be grieved. When viewed in this light, some of the things that we say and do in the wake of death seem quite odd. For instance, every once in a while, instead of a funeral, you'll, you'll hear that the family of a deceased person is holding a celebration of life. I was probably around 12 or 13 when I first encountered one of these celebrations, and I can recall being sort of vaguely uncomfortable with the whole thing without being able to identify exactly why. I still feel that way, but you'll be pleased to know I'm now in a position to put a finer point on my unease, which stems from the seeming reticence to acknowledge that something sad has happened. There's nothing wrong with celebrating the life and accomplishments of someone who died, assuming that they lived a life worth celebrating. But if our motivation for doing so is in order to pretend there's nothing or at least not much to be sad about, then we have failed to appreciate death for what it is. I'm not saying this is the motivation of everyone who holds a celebration of life instead of a funeral, but if that is the motivation, then there's a problem somewhere. Sad things should make us sad, and death is a sad thing. As another example, Take some of the things that are sometimes told to people who are grieving the death of a loved one, such as, she's in a better place now, or at least he's not suffering anymore. Again, assuming that these things are true in the circumstance in question, there's nothing wrong with these statements per se. And sometimes people who are grieving may need to be reminded of these things. However, even in the case of the death of a believer who was suffering intense physical pain, grief is warranted, and if our intention in saying these sorts of things is to minimize that grief, we have failed to appreciate death for what it is. So, 
As Christians, grief is an appropriate response to death. However, we should note that in our grief, we do not, or at least should not, despair. As Paul tells the Thessalonians, we do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. As we discussed last week, death is a result of sin, death is an enemy, and death is unnatural, but it is also temporary. Christ has defeated death, and his resurrection serves as notice of his victory over death and is the guarantee of our resurrection when he returns. As such, we need not despair and abandon hope in the face of death. We're going to return to this topic in just a bit, but I first want to discuss an emotion that is related to grief, and that is anger. Anger, properly directed, is an appropriate response to death. Probably most of you have heard either Ted or Wendell talk about John 11 and Jesus' reaction to the death of Lazarus, but we'll revisit it briefly. You know the story. Lazarus is sick, and his sisters send word to Jesus, who waits another couple of days before going to Bethany to see Lazarus. By the time Jesus arrives, Lazarus has died. Jesus' reaction to Lazarus' death and the grief of Lazarus' sisters and the other Jews is, the NIV tells us, to be deeply moved. This is too weak of a translation. The underlying Greek word means something like to have indignation, and it has at its root a word that means to snort with anger. I've heard people object to this interpretation, asking, well, why would Jesus be upset? He knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And I think this misses two things. One, Jesus is fully human and as such is moved by the grief of Mary, Martha, and the other Jews present. Secondly, though, and more importantly, while Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, this is not a permanent solution to the problem of death for Lazarus. Lazarus is raised, but with a mortal body that will die again. In this story, death suffers a setback, but it is not defeated. Jesus knows this, and he is responding accordingly. Now, as you all know, we should be cautious about assuming that we are justified in doing all of the things Jesus did or in reacting to things the way he did. However, in light of what death is, I think anger is a justifiable reaction to death, provided that said anger is properly directed. We are not justified in being angry with God in response to death. As we've noted numerous times, death is a consequence of our sin and rebellion, and it was not part of God's design for humanity. However, anger directed towards sin, both generally and toward our own specific participation in sin, seems to be warranted. We should be upset, even angry, at the consequences of our sin, and death is one of those consequences. I'm not sure that anything brings home the brokenness of this world or the enormity of our sin, quite like the pain we experience in the wake of the death of a loved one. And this should cause us to be grieved and even angry at the flippancy with which we choose to flout God's law. We would want to be cautious how far we press this. I wouldn't necessarily say that unbridled rage is an appropriate response to death. However, some level of of properly directed anger would seem to be both appropriate and justified. So, grief and properly directed anger are appropriate responses to death However, as we were just noting, our grief and anger are not unmitigated because while death is an enemy, it is a defeated enemy. Christ has defeated death, and his resurrection from the dead confirms this and gives us confidence in our resurrection when he returns. 
In addition to providing a check for our grief, this also means that we don't need to fear death. Death does not have the final say, and we don't have to live in fear of it. This is really, really good news, because barring the return of Christ in our lifetimes, all of us will die at some point, and all the advances of science and medicine cannot prevent this. Were it not for the final resurrection, this would be a terrifying thing to contemplate. However, because we know that Christ has defeated death, and we have confidence that he will raise us when he returns, we do not need to fear death. Recall Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Now, not fearing death does not mean we have to feel completely at ease with the thought of dying, as if death were not, after all, an enemy. Rather, I mean that fear of death does not need to be a controlling factor in how we comport ourselves. That's an easy enough thing to say, but what does that actually look like practically? That will vary somewhat from person to person, I think, but I will suggest a couple items. First, I submit that not fearing death means we should not be afraid to think about it and talk about it. Given that death is a universal human experience, you would expect that it would be something we would want to think about and discuss with others, something we would want to prepare ourselves to face, not just through practical steps like writing wills and choosing executors, but also through reflecting on what death is and how we want to respond to it, both when we experience the death of loved ones and if or when we see our own death approaching. After all, that's generally what we do when we know something significant is going to happen. We prepare. However, when it comes to death, I'm not sure that we spend all that much time reflecting on it or preparing for it. The mathematician and philosopher Pascal wrote, being unable to cure death, wretchedness and misery, men have decided in order to be happy, not to think about these things. Pascal wrote that 350 years ago, but I think it is still accurate. However, when compared with the men and women Pascal was describing, we have vastly more tools, toys, and amusements at our disposal to distract us from our own mortality. Of course, the atheist has good reason for his aversion to thinking about death. For him, death really is the cessation of existence, or so he supposes. And as such, he is justified in fearing death and wanting to avoid the inevitable discomfort that comes with reflection on death. But as Christians, death does not hold, or at least should not hold, the same terror for us. As such, we should be willing to acknowledge it for what it is, to think about it, and to talk about it with others. But do we really do that? I'm not sure that we do. In fact, oftentimes, we seem to go out of our way to avoid even saying the word death, instead giving it the Voldemort treatment. Death is that which must not be named, and we avoid saying death or died by using such expressions as passed away or passed on or went home to be with the Lord. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't use these expressions, but I think it's worth considering why we are using them. Is it possible that part of the reason we prefer to use euphemisms rather than call death by its name is that deep down we still fear it and would prefer to avoid thinking about it? This doesn't mean that the answer is to go in the opposite direction and exclusively think and talk about death, but I think most of us could benefit from reflecting on death a bit more than we do. 
I have definitely found that to be the case for myself. A second practical application of the fact that we do not need to fear death is that we should not feel compelled to prolong our lives or avoid death at all costs. To be really clear, I am not suggesting we should be reckless with our lives or romanticize death. As Wendell just talked about in the early church history class, as per persecution intensified in the early church, martyrdom came to be romanticized and idealized, with Christians even greeting each other with the phrase, may you gain your crown, which was an allusion to dying a martyr's death. As we've said lots of times, death is an enemy, and we do not seek it out or befriend it. However, much like taxes, death is certain and cannot be staved off indefinitely. In light of this, it does not make sense to prioritize extending our lives above all else. Some things, like holding to the truth of the faith or defending our families, are worth risking our lives or even dying for, and fear of death need not prevent us from doing these things. There may be times, such as in the case of a terminal illness, where we determine that the physical toll or even the cost of a particular treatment to attempt to prolong our life is not worth it, and I don't see a problem with that. Again, we should not be reckless with our lives, but we should also not make prolonging them at any cost our greatest priority. All right, let's pause now and quickly summarize what we've covered to this point. Death is the separation of the body and the soul that takes place when the major systems and organs of the body cease to function in a coordinated fashion. Death is a consequence of sin, death is an enemy, death is temporary, and death is unnatural. As Christians, we grieve death, but we do not despair. We are perhaps even angered by death, but our anger is directed at sin and our own participation in it, not at God. While death is an enemy, its defeat is sure, and as a result, we do not need to let fear of death be the deciding principle in the way we live our lives. At this point, I want to address a couple questions that may have arisen out of what we've covered so far. Guy Platter has been advocating for some time that we should be taking questions from the congregation as part of our sermons, and I'm not quite ready for that yet, so I've tried to do the next best thing and anticipate your questions so I can prepare my answers. Sort of a chestnut checkers move. So, uh, question one. If death is an enemy, how do we respond to the death of someone who has been experiencing great physical or emotional suffering? Does this mean we can't be grateful that that person is no longer suffering? Well, first, great question, me. Um, <laughs> and I think we need to recognize here that sickness and, and suffering are also consequences of sin and are bad things. And it is appropriate then to be grateful when they are relieved. But what if the thing that relieves sickness or suffering is in itself a bad thing? Wouldn't being grateful that a person who has died is no longer suffering amount to being grateful that the person is dead? I don't think that's the case. We must distinguish here between things and their consequences. Even things that are bad can have mixed consequences, and we can appreciate the positive consequences of the bad thing without being glad that the bad thing happened. For example, one consequence of Brianna's death was that a number of people who were not Christians heard the gospel at her funeral. I'm glad these people heard the gospel, but I am most definitely not glad that Brianna died. In the same way, in an instance where someone who has been experiencing intense physical suffering dies, I can be grateful that that person is no longer suffering while still recognizing that death is an enemy and grieving it as such. 
that the person is no longer suffering is a good thing, but that does not cause death itself to become a good thing. Even in these cases, death is an enemy and something we were not intended to experience, and we should recognize it as that and grieve it as that. All right, question number two. How would any of this help me when I'm struggling with the emotional pain of losing a loved one? I'm sensing just a little bit of hostility in that question, so I'm going to have to ask myself to keep it civil. <laughs> Although, really, I'm anticipating your question, so possibly that's coming from all of you. So um, how does any of this help us? Well, here we need to recall where our feelings come from. Despite how it seems, our feelings are not automatic responses to situations. Our feelings are actually determined by our thinking. Let me give you an example. Story time, which everyone loves. So once, when I was a teenager, I was at the Bluffton Street Fair with some family members, and we ran into my great uncle, Bill Ashleman. Uncle Bill at that time was in his 70s, but he still loved riding the street fair rides, but he didn't like riding them by himself. So he offered to pay for me to ride the rides with him, and naturally I took him up on that. And his favorite ride was one called 1001 Notches. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. It's one of those rides with the, um, the seating arrangement at the bottom and then a big arm with a boom, and then the ride would swing on the arm and eventually go all the way over the top. Um, and great fun was had by all, um, So presumably. So we rode that ride, and it was great. I would describe my feelings along the lines of elation, excitement, and so on, all happy feelings. When we got done, um, because that one was Bill's favorite, he wanted to ride it again, and so we got back in line. And while we were waiting in line, I noticed that you could actually see the whole ride sway a little bit when the arm would swing, especially on the larger swings. And this got me thinking, if you had enough weight in the passenger compartment, I wonder if the ride could generate enough force to tip itself over. And so you can see where this is going, right? We got back on the ride, but this time that's what I was thinking about. And unsurprisingly, um, the thought of the ride potentially tipping over didn't lead to all that enjoyable of feelings. Um, I would describe my feelings the second time along the lines of anxiety and possibly even fear, not happy feelings. So in both cases, the actual circumstances were the same. I was riding on what was probably, anyway, a perfectly safe ride. However, my feelings were very different because in the first case, I thought I was safe and my feelings responded accordingly. Whereas in the second case, I thought perhaps there was a chance I was not safe and my feelings again responded accordingly. It was not the situation itself or the actual objective safety of the ride that determined how I felt. It was what I was thinking about the situation and about the safety of the ride that determined how I felt. This process happens so fast that it almost seems to us that our feelings are automatic, but in reality, they are determined by what we are thinking. So if we are thinking things that are not true, there's a good chance we will end up feeling things that are unwarranted. I submit that this means one of the best ways we can prepare ourselves to deal with the emotional pain of the death of a loved one is to make sure we are thinking correctly about death. I also submit that it is easier to develop our understanding of death before we are dealing with the death of a loved one, as the emotions we feel in the wake of a close friend or family member's death will probably make it much more difficult to think objectively and systematically about death. 
So that's my answer to this question. And some of you are probably thinking that sounds entirely too theoretical, exactly like what you'd expect from someone who sits around thinking about the number four all day. So I also want to give you an example of how this might play out, which in this case means a look at how this has helped me in the wake of Sophia's death. Sophia's death has been the most difficult thing I've been through in my life to this point. I don't say that to make myself out as some kind of martyr or to suggest that my life is a tale of woe and tragedy or to make light of what others have been through. I know many of you have been through similar things as well as things that are much, much worse. However, Sophia's death has been very difficult for me, for Nicole, for our families, and for many of you as well. The grief has been and continues to be very real. Understanding death for what it is, an enemy, a consequence of sin that we were never intended to experience, means that I don't need to feel pressure to pretend Sophia's death isn't a big deal or to put up a front of stoic passivity. Sad things should make us sad, and death is a sad thing. At the same time, though, I know that death is temporary, that death is an enemy whose defeat is sure. This means that I don't grieve Sophia's death as one who has no hope. Despite Sophia's death, my life is not a tragedy. Carrie Warren gave an excellent sermon a few years ago where she talked about what tragedy and comedy are in the literary sense and pointed out that the story of humanity is in fact a comedy. And I have found thinking in these terms to be very helpful. At its most basic level, a tragedy is a story where the protagonist's final state is better than when the story began. Uh, whereas, sorry, I said that backwards. I skipped a line. Yet, yeah. tragedy is a story where the protagonist's final state or situation is worse than when the story began. Whereas, in a comedy, the protagonist's final state is better than when the story began. If, in fact, death were permanent and thus the end of my story, then perhaps I might rightly regard my life as a tragedy. However, I know that death is not the end of my story that I will be raised when Christ returns and will spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. In light of that, the idea that my life could be viewed as tragic strikes me as preposterous. No matter what happens to me in this life or what pain or suffering I may experience, my life is not a tragedy and I refuse to think about it as such. This is something I think about and reflect on a lot and because my feelings are determined by my thinking, this helps me not to feel like my life is a tragedy, even in the wake of Sophia's death. That doesn't mean I don't feel sad, of course, but it means that I don't despair. I was convinced of the truth of Christianity before Sophia's death, and I still am. The emotional pain of Sophia's death does not serve as a rebutter or a defeater for any of the reasons or arguments or evidence that convinced me of the truth of Christianity in the first place. At no point have I felt inclined to question my faith or doubt God's goodness because I know what death is and why it happens. How nonsensical would it be for me to blame God and hold him responsible for something that is the result of human sin and rebellion? Again, just to be absolutely clear, none of this means that Sophia's death is not something to be grieved. It is, and I do grieve it. But thinking rightly about death throughout this process has both validated my grief and kept me from feeling things that are not warranted, like despair or anger at God. That hasn't made this process easy. It's still been the most difficult thing I've ever experienced. However, 
I can't imagine how much more difficult it would have been to go through this while working from a distorted or incorrect understanding of what death is. I'm going to conclude this morning with a passage that we all know well that reminds us what our ultimate hope is as Christians. Paul writes this to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Amen. As I uh, spoke with Josh over the past couple of weeks about this, I was reminded that um, in our ancient creeds that we affirm in the church, there's some rather substantial statements about um, life and um, eternal communion with God. For instance, in the Nicene Creed, we look for, the, uh, uh, for a resurrection of the dead and a life of the age to come. The Apostles' Creed, and in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Church, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the flesh, and life after everlasting and then the Athanasian Creed. At whose coming all men shall rise again with their bodies and shall give an account of their own works. And they that have done good shall go into eternal life and they who indeed have done evil into eternal fire. So clearly we should be setting our sights for the long game for a never-ending communion with our King and Creator. And yet often we act as if our lives um, that what we're doing now is all that there is. Um, sort of a practical atheism uh, that's really prevalent in our culture and sadly, I think, among a lot of believers. We, are, <clears throat> we define often ourselves not by living in each day in a state of freedom of Christ, but by things and experiences that we must have or that we must do now. As though our life is... 77 years. Because really, isn't that all that we have? So I would encourage you to take Josh's presentation and go to the next level, meditate on death. What does it mean? What should it mean for those who have a great hope to understand that this is not the way things ought to be and it's not the end? Let's stand, please. <clears throat> in closing, may God himself the God of peace sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. You're dismissed.